Hey, it's Joyce. Every week, I have the chance to chat with an interesting, inspiring human and to share that conversation with you. Join me as I walk and talk with entrepreneurs, adventurers, and all sorts of people who are working hard to empower women and make the world a better place. Now listen, this is not some highly polished, formally produced podcast. It's just two humans out for a walk with the chance to learn from each other. So lace up your sneakers, head out the door, and join us. Hey, everyone. Joyce here. Welcome to today's Walk and Talk, where our very special guest is a return guest. Dr. Stuart McGill is coming back to Walk and Talk with us one more time. Dr. McGill is a professor and the chief scientific officer at BackFit Pro. He is the author of The Back Mechanic, a book that I devoured more than once. He's a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Waterloo, where he taught for 30 years. And his laboratory and experimental research clinic investigates issues relating to the causal mechanisms of back pain, how to rehabilitate back pained people, of which I am one, and enhance both injury resilience and performance. His advice is sought after by governments, corporations, legal experts, medical groups, and elite athletes and teams from around the world. And now that you have known, now that you know his name, it will certainly cross your radar because Dr. McGill, you are the man. Thank you so much for being back with us again. Oh, good morning, Joyce. So we did cover some of this in our last conversation, but for people who might be new to you and your work, can you just give us a quick background on how you became interested in this topic of back pain? Well, I uh, <laughs> did my PhD in spine biomechanics, uh, was hired as a very young professor, 27 years of age, and then spent 33 years uh, investigating uh, and probing the causes, uh, the best ways to rehab, the best ways to enhance performance, etc. We started out our investigations with a simple question, how does the back work? And after that, uh, that led us into uh, all of these other interesting areas, primarily from listening to uh, other clinicians and listening to athletes and then listening to the lay public. What are their challenges and impediments to getting better? That led our research for, as I said, over 30 years. And, but what drew you to that? Is, was it a puzzle to be solved for you? It was... Uh, to, to back up on that, I, I've been asked many times, oh, would you come and give a talk on choosing a career or career advice for young people? And I say, <laughs> uh, please don't ask me. I'm probably the worst example. I, in a million years, never expected as a, a university student to end up A, as a professor and B, as a specialist uh, in back pain. What led me there was interest and attitude. Uh, when people, uh, I never had to look for work. It was people who would ask me questions. And if I didn't know the answer, the, my, my curiosity drove me to, can I figure out a way to uniquely investigate this to provide the answer? And it was that challenge. And as I said, as much an attitude as anything. 
And uh, as I became better known in back pain, I, I just uh, attracted more inquiries that uh, drove our research. It's really interesting. You know, we've talked uh, previously with other guests on this podcast about the power of following your curiosity and how following your curiosity can lead you down a path of interest and potentially career. And it sounds like that was a little bit at play with you. People would ask you questions, make inquiries, and it piqued your curiosity and off you went. That's exactly it. And sometimes when we were investigating one issue or question, another one would pop up. Or uh, I did another uh, podcast this morning where uh, it reminded me, it w the, the person asked a question and a very, uh, in order to answer that question, we had to develop a whole new technology. <laughs> you know, how can you... Uh, we know that posture change of the spine migrates stress. So if you were to sit in a very slumped fashion, uh, that places stress on the posterior ligaments and the posterior parts of the disc. So if you change posture, you migrate the stress and the pain away from that painful tissue onto another. So we needed a technology to map uh, the curvature and therefore the stress concentrations of uh, people's spines. So there would be an example where we had to develop technology as we went along uh, that wasn't available to answer the question satisfactorily. Which is so interesting, right? Because it, lay people like me just assume that all of this knowledge and technology has existed, right? Like it shouldn't be so mysterious. How, why haven't we figured it all out yet? And then when you speak with you, who is one of the renowned experts in the world and discover like we're still unraveling some of the questions and seeking some of the answers, which is both heartening, I suppose, and not heartening. <laughs> Well, uh, there, there really are two types of scientists. There are those who take technology that exists and use it to answer questions. Uh, I was not one of those. And then there are those who take the question and uh, if they cannot answer the question currently, they then go out and figure out the protocol or or the technology that's required develop that and then go back and answer the question so it it, it requires a certain amount of uh, creativity i suppose plus uh some thoughts about fabricating things and uh, that's that's a whole nother world but but it helps to have an engineering background if if you're going to uh investigate scientific issues in that way yeah i, I it's that's so interesting, right? It leads me to think, and we're way off topic, but I can't help myself, right? It leads me to think that some of the best researchers in the world then have to, it's a combination of science and art and creativity. You've got to bring your creative spirit. You've got to bring your curiosity. You've got to bring your innovator, right? And really figure it out. It, it, that's absolutely right. Yep. And, uh, the graduate students that were part of our research team at any point in time in our laboratory, we would have uh, engineering students, mm. uh, medical <laughs> students. We would even have uh, psychology students, um, mm. all 
looking at these issues from different perspectives and we would have our weekly meetings to see if we could uh, take these different points of view and uh, get a unique insight into that uh, particular question. You know, Dr. McGill, we didn't talk about this at all in our, our last conversation. And now I understand how it is that you and your lab were the leaders in this space, right? That kind of multidisciplinary approach and, and curiosity and creativity and all the things. All right, I could do that all, I could do this conversation all day long, but I wanna move on to a topic that you raised in our pre-interview conversation. And that's around this phrase of people becoming voluntarily fragile. Is that, is that your phrase? Is that something you picked up elsewhere? And what do you mean by that? Ah, that was just something that came out of my mouth at that time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, sometimes what comes out of my mouth is framed by the last five patients I've seen. <laughs> so it was probably mm. um, coming out of some clinical appointments where people were fragile and experiencing back pain and disability voluntarily in that they didn't appreciate that every biological system thrives on stress. A system that is not stressed is weak and fragile. Uh, so there are those, uh, typically the type B uh, personality, and we have to encourage them to create stress and train. There is the type A personality who go to the opposite end of the stress uh, application scale and have far too much stress on their body. And uh, that uh, creates a cumulative microtrauma in the tissues, which starts as pain, as discomfort, then moves to pain and then moves to injury. So the dose is very key for optimizing the health outcome in every biological system. So our system of interest is the spine and, and, and back pain. Um, it's people's choice whether they get up in the morning and go for a walk, as an example. Do they then do some stabilization exercise, which you know very well, later on in the day? They might do it twice, then go for a walk at lunch and at dinner creating a optimal, optimal amount of stress in interval doses that causes their body to adapt in a positive way. And uh, it creates robustness rather than fragility. So people have a choice. And that's why I probably use the word voluntarily fragile. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, this is something that you don't know about us, but every month at 99 Walks, we have a theme of the month. And interestingly, the theme that our entire community is focused on and walking around this month is you choose. So it's so funny that, to me that you just used that, that phrasing. Um, but I want to talk about something that's super tricky for people on either end of the spectrum, I believe. I think your type A's or your type B's. And that is interpreting that discomfort, interpreting the right level of work, because it, it is uncomfortable. If you're going to put enough stress on your body for it to adapt and get stronger, 
then there is going to be some discomfort. And, and I think as a society, we're not great at understanding what's the right amount. What's the, what is the right dose? Like, how do we figure that out for ourselves? Yeah, just this whole concept of discomfort is very, very tricky. Let me give you an mm. example. Uh, consider laying in bed for a long period of time. If you lay in bed and you do not change your posture, you will experience discomfort. Now, if you ignore that discomfort, slowly the discomfort turns to pain. And if you ignore the pain, you will then succumb to injury and it's called a bed sore. So there is an example where not doing anything actually uh, uh, went from discomfort to pain to injury. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end is people uh, uh, also ignore discomfort and then go to pain and they think, oh, they're really doing a good job or what a fabulous trainer this person is. Uh, I did squats with them and I couldn't walk without soreness for three days. <laughs> so yep. it's, it's funny how people interpret uh, discomfort and somewhere there has to be an education and a self-awareness to know how much discomfort is required to trigger that appropriate adaptation mechanism to create robustness and move away from fragility. And do you have any suggestions on how people can start to find that level for themselves? Well, as you know, I wrote back mechanic for that uh, purpose, because if you ask that question to the average clinician, I would suggest that they wouldn't get uh, a succinct answer. And the reason is, everyone is a little bit different. So it requires a little bit of a self-assessment. Um, do you have pain? What triggers your pain? What activities trigger your pain? What loads trigger your pain? Do you have an injury history? Uh, all of these go into the pot, so to speak, to consider what is the most appropriate uh, challenge currently. Now, it may be that the person is uh, changing their uh, life because of pain, um, or it may be that uh, th th they are really robust. But the point is, they first of all have to wind down the cause of pain. Uh, let's take walking again, because I know that's uh, a love of both of ours. Um, if a person walks for 20 minutes and then starts to get backache, uh, they've walked too far. They should walk 15 minutes. Don't trigger the pain and it will slowly desensitize. So if instead of walking for 20 minutes, guaranteeing pain, if they walked 15 minutes, three times a day, they've now accumulatively walked 45 minutes. They've guaranteed success of no pain. Over time, they will uh, teach their body to become more fit, more robust, and, and not trigger pain. So do you see there is a rule of thumb. If you don't go to pain and you interval train it and then slowly progress over time, uh, that might be very suitable for uh, one particular person, but not all. There are also things that that person can do to delay 
the discomfort. Um, I believe we talked about the park bench, park bench decompression when uh, we were talking about people who experience pain walking after 20 minutes. Did we discuss that last time? I, I don't believe we did, and I would like to hear that. But before we do that, I just want to put an exclamation point on what you just described, because I do think that there are people out there who you walk for 20 minutes, and at 20 minutes, this is such a subtle but important distinction. At 20 minutes, you start to feel pain. So people think, I better not walk because walking causes my pain. But what you're suggesting, which makes so much sense, is walk until a shorter distance and don't trigger that pain and then build on that, right? Like don't throw, don't throw in the towel because you can't do 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Find what you can do comfortably and build on it. Don't just give up. Joyce, we both know that for health, walking is non-negotiable. If a person breaks into pain after five steps and we get patients like that, they walk three steps. They get out of their chair and walk three steps every 10 or 15 minutes. The longer their tolerable dose of walking, the greater the time between the interval dosage until eventually they can go for a hike in the mountains for three hours once in the afternoon and they are <laughs> robust and it is uh, really enhancing their health. But that is the key to restoring this vital component of health. I love that. Okay, let's talk about the park bench. I interrupted you, but I just really wanted to put a fine point on that. Okay, the park bench decompression, go. As you know, uh, as you do know, <laughs> I, I usually try and start with a principle and then put it into action. So the principle is this. There's no such thing as nonspecific back pain. Even though there are entire books written about nonspecific low back pain, in our world, it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Everyone's back pain is very specific. So we do some tests. Now, let's uh, take the example of someone who goes for a walk and it's therapeutic. And then they sit at the computer for 20 minutes and they get low back pain. Go for a walk. The pain goes away. Sit down at the computer. The pain comes back. That is what we call flexion-based back pain. As you sit, you round out your low back and that will uh, trigger pain. But walking upright reverses that flexion curve. And in most people, you get a hollow or an, a, a slight extension in your spine as you're walking, which is uh, beneficial. So uh, park bench decompression. Let's say uh, a person then uh, starts to go for a walk and they do hit that 20 minute wall and the pain starts. Um, if sitting causes their pain, quite often the way to extend their pain-free walking time is you go up to, let's just use the back of a pickup truck. Let's lower the tailgate of the pickup truck. Walk up to the back of the tailgate, externally rotate your shoulders and put the heels of your hands on the back of the tailgate. Baby step away. Then go up on your toes and post your shoulders up over your hands. So now the weight of your body is going down your arms. 
push your shoulders down away from your ears. Do you see how this is a natural uh, traction for your back and allow your pelvis to move slowly towards the tailgate? Now you're reversing the stresses associated with sitting. So first of all, to, to summarize, sitting causes your back pain. Walking after 20 minutes causes that same type of ache. Try this. It doesn't work in everybody, but it works in most. The park bench decompression. Put your hands, the heels of your hands, on the back of the tailgate. Shoulders up over your hands. Post down. Allow the pelvis to move towards the tailgate, getting you nice and tall. Uh, now, it's called a park bench because if you walked in a park, you could go up to the back <laughs> of the park bench and put your hands on the back of the bench. That's usually a pretty good height for most people. It could be a log if you're walking in the forest. It could be anything. It could be a bicycle rack if you're walking in the city. Anyway, that's the uh, park bench decompression who it's for and what it does. And it's just one of the, the many examples of kind of this practical, tactical advice that you provide. And I'm going back and then we're gonna go forward, but I'm going back to where we started a little bit, which is it occurs to me that one of the things that I personally uh, loved so much about the back mechanic was twofold. First you sort of encouraged me as a reader to bring my curiosity to understanding my back pain, right? Which is, which is a very different kind of mindset for many people. And then the second was to start exploring these movement modalities to figure out which ones were helpful. And it's just, it's incredibly empowering to people who have back pain to encourage them to become a student of their body and a student of their back uh, and a student of their pain. So uh, thank you for that, because I think as much as the there's so much value in the material and, and education that you put out there, but one of the things that you put out there is also just this encouragement to people to kind of take ownership of that. So just a just a little fangirling around you. Well, it, it it's interesting the feedback that uh, we get. Uh, sometimes, uh, yes, it is very empowering, and it has one of two reactions with most people. Some are very happy and appreciative to say, "Oh, wow, I'm I I really now have a strategy to mm -hmm. uh, deal with my specific type of pain." And then others get really angry. You know, I, I can think of examples of uh, people who've lost their career because of back pain. And then they were told by a clinician, oh, you're always going to have this pain or you need mm -hmm. back surgery or something very negative. And they were never shown that there was a relatively simple strategy, A, to wind down the pain, and B, to strategically retune their body to get back to this robustness that we're all seeking. And uh, they're, they're, they, get, they get angry at the ill advice that they have, uh, they've had. Oh, yeah. We could, we could go down that rabbit hole for sure. 
Um, one day I will tell you the story of the doctor who suggested that I have a hysterectomy because I had a pulled psoas. So yeah, <laughs> it's a, there's a lot out there. Yeah. Um, so uh, changing gears once again, because of course there's so much that we long to cover with you today. Uh, can we talk for a few minutes about the power of walking with a weighted pack and how that can be beneficial to your back and your spine, which I think seems counterintuitive for a lot of people. Right. I've been uh, misinterpreted and, and uh, <laughs> there was a very uh, high profile podcast where the guest on it said, oh, Dr. McGill uh, is a real fan of rocking and it caused quite a, a, a bit of a disturbance. And I remember the podcast that I had done with this individual and I didn't uh, call it rocking. I, I called it load carriage and, and using a backpack. So for me, rocking is uh, used in a military context, uh, a very large component of boot camp. And it is designed to do several things. One is psychological toughening, but it's not really what I would consider as being um, uh, scientifically justifiable as a way of enhancing back health. So I, I did want to make that distinction between carrying a backpack and rucking. We're not talking about rucking. So let's go back to that example of the person who sits in front of the computer for uh, 20 minutes and going for a walk uh, helps them. Uh, maybe it's an hour, I don't know. Um, or there is a category of people who have posterior disc bulges, very common. And if you have a posterior disc bulge that has what we call an open fissure to it, um, or a disc tear, almost always the pain steadily increases with the amount of time sitting. If the person were then to lay on their tummy, and just relax and breathe for four minutes. And then if they stand up and say, you know, that ache from sitting is now gone, and it may even involve pain down the legs, numb feet, numb hamstrings, etc. If that drill of laying on your tummy and just exhaling and, and relaxing reduces that pain, then we now have a load carriage strategy that really propels recovery in that subcategory of patient. Put on a backpack and carry the load low. In other words, in the hollow of the lumbar spine, just above the buttocks. And for the average listener, I'm talking a very modest amount. Um, in, in Canada, I might say eight kilos. In the U.S., I'm going to say 20 pounds just a very modest amount of load worn low in the backpack. Now consider this, when you have a disc bulge of the, of the type that I'm describing, when you get out of a chair, it's kind of hard to stand up straight. There's a forward lean or antalgia and you can see people give it away as they are getting out of their chair. They're actually walking their hands up their thighs. And it is a, a bit miserable <laughs> to, to pull the hips through and stand up nice and tall. 
What's interesting? I'm laughing because I've had those. I've had those moments. Yeah. Uh, oh, there are s- such signs that people give away that are are often just ignored uh, by by uh, many clinical colleagues. But nonetheless, uh, when a person shows that, uh, if they go for a walk and they're not upright, the back muscles have to contract, and it, they actually impose a compressive penalty on the spine just to hold the 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 torso upright but remember they're not quite getting upright all the way they're slightly leant forward because of the disc bulge the backpack does the job of, of those extensor muscles we're moving the extensor torque through the 20 pound weight which is further behind the back now we're lengthening the handle of the wrench so we're getting more rotational force. You know, if, you, if you've got a, a nut on your car tire that you're trying to loosen, uh, go get a, bing- a bigger uh, wrench handle or Johnson bar, mm-hmm. as a mechanic would call it, mm-hmm. to increase the leverage. So I've explained this to some orthopedic surgeons and they, they look at me puzzled. But when I explain it to our, our students or our biomechanic students, they get the leverage principle right away. The weight holds up their low back for a much less compressive cost to the spine. So uh, then we, interestingly enough, if the person can get upright and go for a walk, uh, there's a subcategory of disc bulge patients where that actually creates the hydraulics on the disc to vacuum in the disc bulge. Walking over undulating ground, not a hard New York sidewalk, and not a mountain, but a undulating golf course would be ideal. Walk a couple of holes on the golf course. Don't swing a club. Just go for the walk. <laughs> um, and it's the up and down action with the backpack worn low that uh, makes it a tolerable and, in fact, a therapeutic activity. So there would be an example of what subcategory of people fit this and a strategy using a backpack uh, to mitigate and, and not only mitigate, but actually increase robustness. And believe it or not, I just looked at the time. We're almost out of time. Well, we are out of time, but I'm not, I'm not giving you up quite yet. Uh, talk to me, if you would, about people who are not suffering from back pain and are there uh, sort of um, prophylactic benefits to this kind of weighted walking over time. Is that going to help strengthen those? And we haven't even gotten to the core. We may have to have a whole other conversation about suitcase carry and core. Um, but walking with a weighted pack for people who are not suffering from back pain, are there benefits? Yes. Remember, every biological system thrives on stress. So if a person wants greater capacity, they have to add more stress to get the biological system to adapt more robustness. That's a a general principle that you can't get away from. So people will train to become stronger, more endurable, uh, and more robust. But If you want to take just a second to go into the suitcase carry, um, (laughs) you can carry the load low in the backpack. Um, There are certain types of back pain that is triggered 
by an unbalanced athleticism around the spine or around the core. They might have very strong back muscles or very strong anterior abdominal muscles, but their lateral core is uh, questionable. It's not up to the task. Now I'm going to take two extremes here. Let's take a NFL 340 pound offensive tackle. I had one not that long ago. Uh, they would run and then cut and change direction. So they'd run, plant the left foot, externally rotate the right hip and change direction to the right. That caused them pain and they were slow and they could be beaten with that unbalanced athleticism. As they planted the right foot, the force came up through the right. Uh, sorry, did I say right foot? Yeah. Uh, okay, they plant the right leg. The left hip drops down because the left core doesn't hold the pelvis up. That mm. causes what's called an energy leak to us biomechanists, and they slow down and they lose speed. So there's an example where the best exercise to correct that would be a suitcase carry, which is a load just carried in one arm at the side. And that challenges the sides of the uh, spine. So let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum now. And let's take a person who has some muscle compromise on the left-hand side of their spine. And I think back to one patient. It was a young girl uh, from the neurology ward at the hospital who had a paralyzed quadratus lumborum, which is one of the lateral spine muscles. If she walked, she could stand on her right leg and swing her left leg, but the left pelvis would drop, remember, that muscle that was supposed to be active there wasn't. She could hardly walk. And then when she stood on her left leg with a intact right-sided quadratus lumborum, she could swing that leg and she had a perfectly normal gait. So every time she put weight on the right leg, uh, sorry, uh, yes, on the right leg and swung the left, she, her, her knee would buckle and, and she would drop. So there's an example of how important it is a uh, athletic, competent walking pattern or gait pattern requires frontal plane, which is side to side strength. There are people who are just unfit and they demonstrate what's called the penguin walk or the penguin gait. And instead of taking large athletic steps, swinging the arms about the shoulders and really uh, gaining some velocity, they walk with the whole body leans from side to side with this side pendulum, very mm -hmm. short steps. It's usually in, in heavy people. Um, but again, they are what we will say voluntarily <laughs> fragile, and that's no fun. But the cure for that would be to uh, first work on those. Uh, people don't consider them as walking muscles, the lateral core, but it unleashes the athleticism, gets it up to par, and they can uh, start to walk with some speed and uh, just enjoy it so much more. So, so much to unpack. Uh, and if, if we can make time to do this again one day, next on the hit parade uh, is to talk a little bit about core muscles and 
I think we, I think the average person has a fairly limited view of what that entails and how to strengthen them. And, and to your point, since you were just really uh, talking about it in a sort of a sideways kind of way, how important core muscles are to our overall feelings of wellness. So perhaps that's a conversation for another day. Dr. McGill, thank you so, so much for being here today and for the work that you do out in the world. I, for one, appreciate it, as do millions of others. Uh, the book, again, is The Back Mechanic. And Dr. McGill, if people want to learn more about your work, where are the best places to find you out in the interwebs? Yeah. Well, if I may, Joyce, the book is called yeah. Back Mechanic, not The Back Mechanic. Uh, <laughs> there was sorry. actually a, a pirated copy. Here's the world of AI. What? There was an AI robot that copied my book and called it <gasps> The Back Mechanic. So please don't buy that. Um, oh, my gosh. My apologies. Yeah. My, my uh, book uh, is called Back Mechanic, which is the original one that I authored. But uh, our website uh, is backfitpro.com. And uh, it has a list of clinicians that I've trained uh, in various locations. If a person feels the need to uh, find a clinician to uh, fine tune what they've read in Back Mechanic to get out of the pain. Well, I assure you, I read the original, and uh, I'm sorry to hear that there's there's something not. No, it's a it's a right world that we're headed towards. I'm afraid. Uh, oh my goodness! All right, well. With that, thank you again, and we will link that in the show notes so that people can readily find the correct version. Thank you again. Have a beautiful day. Same to you. Bye, Joyce. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for today's Walk & Talk. Catch new episodes featuring inspiring guests every week and all the places podcasts live. Until then, I wish you happy trails.